I think people being really open at the beginning of what job they can take. It might not just be UX. It might not just be visual design. It might not even be titled product design yet. But I think being open to the type of companies and people that really want to bring in junior designers to grow them, to let them learn a bunch of things is is probably where designers need to look when they're first starting out. You're listening to the UI Narrative Podcast, the bi-weekly podcast that shares the stories of people of color, interface designers and researchers, and their contributions towards creating user-centered experiences. And I'm your host, Tolu Ajayi. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the UI Narrative Podcast. Today, we have another special guest. So, Nastasia Elise Tebeck is a Seattle-based UX designer, illustrator, and career mentor with over 10 years' experience within the tech industry. She is inspired by future and what it could be. And she also believes that design should be purposeful, intentional, and useful. She has a penchant for inventing processes, systems, and frameworks that make people's lives easier. And she cares about details, leads by examples, and loves building large impact programs that foster creativity, inspiration, and skill building. She's a big advocate for women in design, inclusion, and making sure everyone is seen and heard. While at Amazon, Nastasia helped pioneer the first V1 multimodal device, Echo Show, that combined a touchscreen with the Alexa voice service. It won a UX award in 2017. She also founded and led a series of global company-wide community event series and work groups around women, design, culture, and diversity. When she's not designing, you can find her illustrating and side hustling her creative business, listening to podcasts, and playing with her new Labrador pup, Jackson. Nastasia, welcome to the UI Narrative podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. All right, so... You've been in the tech industry for over 10 years. Tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a UX designer and basically like what sparked your interest in design and how did you get started? Yeah, my journey into UX was actually an interesting one because I didn't know what it was while I was doing it until doing some reflection. But I essentially worked at a company called Clarity Logistics where I had to do sort of an about me presentation during my training class. And although I was originally getting hired to be sort of a scheduler for their transportation, I did a, a comic series sort of about myself, just kind of talking about my background. And in that meeting, the exec team and the CEO was there and he saw that I had visual talent. So he actually wanted to move me from my original job. I got hired to actually join the development team. And so I, I partnered with the director of innovation And he kind of just led the door open for me and said, like, hey, we're looking for someone to visualize big ideas. And are you interested? And so I I took the chance because it sounded awesome. And anything that I could do to draw would be great. So from there, I was able to get my first sort of Mac display computer. I was able to sort of learn any of the design programs I wanted to and just spent my time really storyboarding, even though I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but essentially just drawing out scenes of of visions and like all the ideas that the company wanted to do. Eventually, after doing that, I got put on as the sort of lead designer for the mobile team. And I was 
put in charge of designing the mobile app experience. So because I actually didn't own a smartphone at the time, I took a lot of research and sort of understanding, you know, sort of what technology is, like what were cell phones in the market, sort of what did it mean about mobile design. And so I pretty much learned a lot of what I know from reading articles and following people on Twitter. And then I actually was able to go to the conference UIE, where I got to see like Luke Robluski speak on stage about mobile first, as well as as a few others and Jared Spool. And from then on, I kind of understood like, oh, there's this thing called design and there's this thing called UX. And it actually mirrors sort of my ability to create and illustrate, but at the same time, like my problem solving skills and more analytical thinking as well. So it kind of married both of them. And from there, I kind of just dove in. So I would learn what I needed to learn. And then a lot of times I would look at sort of what people were asking for candidates on job descriptions. And if it's a tool, I didn't know what it was, or if it's a certain thing they wanted that person to know, I went out and just sort of learned it. So I did that with Axure. I did that when I was doing usability testing. And from there, I kind of just morphed in everything that I knew to become a UX practice at the company. So it was very, very hands-on. And I did everything from from market research and user interviews all the way up to helping the marketing campaign, writing the app store content, doing the icon design, and then following up afterwards. So it was really end-to-end UX design, but also really like what we call, I guess, today product design. But it was really exciting. I was there for three years and then I just knew that I wanted to keep doing it and continued on and went more into a specialization of interaction design is where I really felt my love because I really I really was interested in how people moved through moments, how they moved through pages, how they just sort of transitioned. And, and so I kind of found my place in interaction and also information architecture. And so I continue to sort of push on those and systems design a little bit more to this day. Wow. So basically you had like a non-traditional design path with how you've ended up to where you are today, which I think is so amazing. A previous person I interviewed called uh, Maya, she was talking about how she went and was looking for different curriculums for online courses. So she would like, you know, schedule the interview to talk with them, see what the curriculum is like. And then when she had that list, she would do um, online research to figure out more about it. So it's, it's just amazing, like how people are getting into product design, not necessarily needing to go back to school or get a degree, you know, a four year degree to get into it. Exactly. And that was one of the that was also a thing that I really loved about it when I realized that you could do that is that, yeah, I come from I have a business management background. I don't have a design degree and just being able to walk into it. And also as I went along, I discovered a lot of other UX designers that have like a background in anthropology or in physics or just, you know, in English. And so just all different types of people were coming together and just looking at problem solving and how to break down complex things um, and then really being passionate about the user. And so I really like that UX feels very inclusive in that way. And it's, yeah, that people can get into it and not have to have, have a four-year degree in design in order to do it. 
You've been working at companies like MedBridge, Amazon, and United Airlines, which have challenged you to create and lead processes and systems that helped you innovate in product design. And I know some of our listeners, they've, they have experience from one to three years, and they're looking to bump up to like a manager position. So for someone like that, looking to get into a manager position for the first time, what advice do you have for them when it comes to showing potential employers that they are ready for this position? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things that you can do if you're if you're currently in a position yourself working at a company and you're currently employed i think it's it's about working directly with your manager and other supporters or advocates or finding a mentor as well where you could basically build a career program at the current place you're in and really what that means is just about focus on the tasks and the responsibilities that say a people manager role would be doing and seeing if there's some of those things that you could sort of take on. One of the things that I learned at Amazon and some others is that you need to be basically performing the next level higher role for a certain amount of time to show consistency before getting promoted to those levels. It shows that you can do this job and have competency in it. And so with that in mind, I think it would just be like exploring like what what do managers and like people managers and leaders sort of bring to the table and what are some of those things that you could do? So for an example, it, does your company have an internship program? If they do, can you sort of raise your hand and, and ask to be like, hey, can I mentor one of the interns or can I be like that, the go-to person for them? So then you could sort of oversee and supervise. I'd also be vocal about your interests finding a career mentor, really understanding all the responsibilities that could go into a manager. And it's about persuasion and strategic and having compassion and being nurturing. And then also starting to understand the impact of success metrics to focus and how you would like prioritize a team's efforts towards them. You should be driving meetings, you know, leading solutions, and are you driving change? So I think that there are certain aspects of you can try to take on some of these responsibilities, even if you aren't a manager, and some of them will then show other people around you that you're ready to sort of step up into this role. And then if you're not currently working and you're looking for a job, I think one thing to really highlight is where you've had impact. So go back and look at everything that you've done. And has there been moments where you've you've impact holistically, either at a larger scale, horizontally for like a, say, org wide, or are there processes that you've put into place that have helped not only yourself or your team, but a wider audience? And what are the things where like you were leading solutions and where are the places where you were compassionately nurturing and sort of mentoring other people and helping lift people up? But I think if you can highlight that, whether in your portfolio in your resume and just how you speak about your case studies, I think that shows that you're going above and beyond than just delivering the problems at hand. And so I think that's a good strategy, whether, yeah, whether you're out outside of employment looking for the next role or inside uh, your current workplace and trying to figure out how to manage that. Yes, yes. I also wanted to touch on mentorship again, like how you were bringing up. Even if you can't find someone to mentor at your company, there's opportunities outside. Like I mentor with Springboard, so that's one option. Uh, General Assembly and other online courses have um, options for mentorship. 
So I feel like having something like that on your resume too, like if you're trying to jump to a new job and they may not have like those mentorship opportunities at your current company, having that on there is another way you could show that you have that leadership capability. And that's also too, like how I've moved into senior product design role because at my current company, not dev startup company, I was started off as just like a senior designer, but then over time, like they put me more into the senior product designer role just because I've shown and expressed to them like how I've been doing mentorship outside of work. So you've mentored over 100 people independently and through various mentorship programs at UI UX Bootcamp, Destination, Amazon, Hexagon, UX, and SVC. What's one of the biggest struggles you see people that are getting started in UX have? I think one of the biggest struggles... Part of it is on the junior designer trying to just sort of get project experience and set up a portfolio that feels different and feels capable enough for the job. But I also really think it's more along the lines of a a struggle with the companies. And I think that honestly, like unless there's someone at big tech that actually has the capacity to mentor junior designers, it's really hard for junior designers to get into certain companies. And, you know, despite people wanting to be inclusive and and wanting to bring people on board, I think it also really depends on the company culture. And when I say that, I mean, like there's plenty of companies, big and small out there that they want you to jump in and just go. Like they just, they've hired you, do your thing. And there's not a lot of capacity for everyone to sort of help mentor you and really shape you because the the focus of those orgs are around productivity. However, then there's other companies that really excel at, hey, we really care about hiring on junior and mid-level designers because we want to grow them. And that is that is the business model of those companies and those orgs specifically. So I think one of the struggles is really people getting their foot in the door. And I think it's it's a mix of the way companies are trying to hurry and like get everyone to move really fast and not, they just don't have the time to basically mentor people and help them. And then it's a mix of like, okay, well, as a junior designer coming on board, like what can we do to sort of research around the companies and the culture a little bit more and sort of identify Like where are places that are actually looking to grow people and where are places that are moving at a speed where they, where they can give you that. And a lot of times that ends up being sometimes in the smaller to mid-level range of companies. And it's usually you're doing a bunch of different roles. So I think people being really open at the beginning of what job they can take. It might not just be UX. It might not just be visual design. It might not even be titled product design yet. But I think being open to the type of companies and people that really want to bring in junior designers to grow them, to let them learn a bunch of things is is probably where designers need to look when they're first starting out versus others. and And then getting kind of discouraged because it's hard to sort of get in the door for some of these larger companies. But yeah, with project experience, it's always hard because it's like a chicken and egg thing. It's like, we want you to, (laughs) we want you to have some experience so we could hire you, but how do you get experience if you can't get it? So I always tell people that when you're thinking of projects and sort of lining up your portfolio to either do a hypothetical project or also make a case study around something that either involves 
new tech and emerging tech, even if it's on your own with things that are out there in the world, because that looks like you're more clued into what's going on in technology. And it's a little bit more interesting than just a redesign of a website that looks poor or on the flip side, doing something that's really involved locally. So if it's something that's a little bit harder where it's like, oh, I'm going to redesign, you know, something that has to do with the police force or something that has to do with like civics or something that has to do with healthcare or things that might feel a little bit harder, a little bit more dry at first, but there's a lot in there, a lot of problems to solve. And I think if you're trying to build a, a robust portfolio or show a case study that might push further, even though you don't have a tons of experience, I would really either focus on big problems to solve for like a lot of people in the world versus just a small amount of people or focus on emerging tech that really shows that you're clued in to what's going on. And that will at least help you showcase and maybe stand out a little bit more when you're going through the hiring process. Yeah, totally. I'm thinking back to like when I first got started in design and like my first graphic designer job, it's like the same experience of like people that are junior designers in product design, the problems that they're facing, like people don't, companies are like afraid to give you a chance because it's like, they don't have anyone, you know, as you said, to mentor you through the process. So they want to see that you're capable without, you know, someone handholding you the whole time. But like also too, like when I got into the mid-level range, like I worked at a company that didn't have any advancements past that middle-level range. So then it kind of felt like, wow, like now I got to jump to another company again just to get senior experience. So I feel like some jobs are like basically just for the experience in that certain level that you're at. Oh, yes, definitely. And that's, I, I fully agree with that. And I think that's also something people need to think about as they move through their career and different jobs is really asking yourself, like, where am I at right now? And what am I trying to gain in this moment for this chapter, whether that's another year, whether it's next three years, whatever it is, and it's going to be different answers for different people. And so having that be your North Star on like what you're doing in this moment and not either fret or overly worry about what it all means in the bigger picture yet, it'll help you kind of just yeah keep putting one foot in front of the other for sure. Yeah, goals are so important. Like I don't especially like with how the industry is constantly changing with, you know, new terms for what to call yourself. Like (laughs) three years ago, it was UX designer and now it's product designer, just based off of like the experience you have. Just having those goals of like what type of company you're working for or like just any goals in general towards like product design career development. Yeah, definitely. I know when I when I transitioned from Coyote to United Airlines and I, you know, I'd been there for three years and I basically was, you know, leading a lot of the UX practice there. The team was small. We had a couple other people that were sort of UI developers that also did design. But yeah, at that moment I was like, I want to learn more from people who are more senior than me and I want to be on a design team that's larger so I can learn. And when I went to United, it was like a team of 20 and they had, you know, they had a UX director, like they sat in the e-commerce department, like they worked directly with project managers and they had three researchers and visual was separate from interaction, but we all sat together. So just knowing in that moment, like, oh, okay, this moment, I need this type of team so I can continue growing at this level. And then when I moved to Amazon, it was a it was a different thing that was inspiring me there as well. So 
I think that's really important to evaluate every time you're about to pivot or where you are with your career and your current skills and what you're trying to gain for sure. Let's take a short break. Are you ready to become a UI or UX designer or researcher? I'm now offering consultation calls for getting started in UI UX design. In this call, we'll talk about your strengths and I'll help you discover how to get started in the tech industry. Before our call, I'll send you the Career Pivot to UI UX Design 16-page guide for free. In this guide, I go over what to expect, education, software, portfolio, and the job market. You can book your call at uinarrative.com slash workwithme. That's uinarrative.com slash workwithme. Once you're on the webpage, choose Getting Started in UI UX Design to book your appointment with me. I cannot wait to talk to you and help you find clarity on which UI or UX path is right for you. Yeah, yeah. I want to keep talking about teams for a second because I went through a phase where I thought I wanted to just be solo working by myself. So I was a freelancer for a little bit. And then like during that phase, I realized that I actually do like teams. It's just I didn't like the teams that I've been on so far (laughs) because I wasn't getting enough creative pushback. I wanted more like constructive criticism and I just kind of felt like it was like a a meh type of like feedback situation. So like now the team I'm on now is like amazing feedback with the more senior level designers. Yeah. It's like sometimes you got to just like trial and error at different places until you figure out what it is that you want. Cause it's like, until you experience it, you don't really know sometimes. Oh yeah, definitely. And I remember also going, when I transitioned from United to Amazon, I worked on a team called the Device and Services Design Group or DDG. And at the time, I believe they still are, but it was the largest design team at Amazon. And I mean, there was like a almost 200 designers on there, like maybe one 175. It was large. And I just remember going going in there and being surrounded by so many talented people. I felt like imposter syndrome, just like out the wazoo. It was just, but like everyone was, everyone was amazing. Everyone was so skilled at like their own niche between like the motion designers and like animators and then just visual design. And it was just so fun to just be around people that like were really passionate about their niche and were also you know, even though everyone was super busy a lot of the times, but everyone was really open. Like if I wanted to sit next to like our principal visual designer and ask him about visual design, he would be like, okay, yeah, sit next to me and we'll talk, we'll talk through this UI. Like no one like closed a door to that. So it's, there's a big difference in, yeah, working on teams where everyone's sort of in their own lane and very solo. And then there's yeah, just a difference on like, you're just surrounded by people that are just really talented. And it almost just like it energizes you to like be better and do more and like give your best. And I feel grateful that I did work at my specific team on Amazon, because it gave me so much in the design culture aspect and just the learning and being exposed to a lot of different roles and disciplines that I just hadn't been to before. So yeah. As a black proc designer, I'm usually the only black person in the room. And a lot of the time I'm the only person of color. So I'm sure you've probably had some similar experiences. <laughs> Have you faced any struggles being the only person of color or woman in the room? And do you have any advice to Latinx designers that don't see anyone who looks like them at their company? 
I will notice, I think, a little bit more when I'm the only woman in the room because it feels glaring. <laughs> and I, there have been moments where I'm like either the only one or there's two people in the room. And and it feels that way because when it's the opposite and somehow I walk into a room where every creative in there and product manager is all women, we actually like let out like, oh, look there's us all women in the room. This is awesome. And so it clearly has an effect. But I think it's on one hand, it's about knowing your strengths and knowing what you bring to the table. I know for me as a person, I have a little bit more of an assertive personality type. So I can go into a meeting room and I force myself to sit in the middle of the table versus the wallflower on the sidelines. So I can be more participatory and be available to talk and you know speak up more but I also notice people in the room who might need a little bit of help with that so one thing that I'll notice is like if I see another you know woman or even a woman of color or someone that isn't particularly either speaking up or hasn't had the space to do so I try to make the space for them whether it's pushing back the conversation and letting them take the floor or trying to kind of say like, hey, well, what do you think over there? Like, what what do you feel about this? If they if it feels like the conversation is kind of running on and they're not able to speak. So I try to create the space for people. As far as finding though my community, one thing that I found that when I haven't seen as many like Latinx designers at on my orgs that I've been on, there's usually always a larger community at hand within the company. Sometimes there's not, but what I found is I try to, I try to find my community, whatever that means. So like it, it's different again for each person, but I try to find people that see me, that appreciate my value, that advocate for me. And then for me, this also means I find people with like similar interest values and drive. So it might not mean that I find someone that happens to also be a person of color. It might not mean this person is a woman. It just means that like I'm trying to find my community, whatever is important to me in that moment. Because when you do that, it's allowing you to create a safe space of people to turn to, whether or not they look like you. It's pretty much helped me at every company I'm at. So I'm not overly sort of paralyzed by this fear of like, oh, there's no other person of color here. What do I do? And like feel sort of that type of vibe. And instead it's just like, okay, like I look at myself and I recognize like, okay, I'm I'm probably the only person (laughs) that looks like me here. I'm the only person of color. I'm the only person with full sleeve tattoos. I'm the only person with very obvious facial piercings and I'm dressed casually. So I'm like, I recognize how I show up in this space, but I don't let it hold me back and I still try to go out of my way to find community and however that looks for me. I would suggest anyone doing the same and whether that means someone with your same interests or values, whether that's someone within your ethnicity or racial group that you identify with or people of the same gender or religious beliefs, et cetera, like whatever that looks like for you, just like having those people help build that community so you don't feel so alone in the moment. If, if that is the situation, yeah. Yeah, imposter syndrome is such a huge problem in the design industry. Like I've talked to so many people that have the same feelings that you have. And I feel like women and people of color deal with this more just because it's it's harder for us to feel, I guess, a safe space within the design industry sometimes. 
because it's just so important to see people that look like you, you know, doing what you're doing. But then when you can't find that, I I feel it's important that to find something similar, whether it be, you know, someone that has the same race or interests, gender, religions, like as you said, someone you can relate to basically that you feel like you can feel safe in these spaces and basically an ally within the spaces, someone that will, you know, speak for you when you're not in the room or just someone you can vent to about different work politics and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think finding those people are important. I also think not being afraid to be that person for other people, even if you don't have those people yet is also important. I know that in my career, I've been told without me realizing it that, you know, I've created space for others when I've whenever like I get up and present in front of a room when I'm actually giving a presentation or some of the programs that I led at Amazon, they were like design lectures. And every time I stood up at the podium to sort of introduce all the speakers, like I had people come up to me afterwards saying that like, it's huge just seeing you stand there and everything that you look like and represent. And it just, I didn't really realize it in the moment. So even if sometimes it feels hard, maybe to find the community that you need, just kind of put it back to yourself sometimes soon. Like how, how can I also create that for other people? Cause there may be other people that might not look exactly like me, but may see me and I mean something to them. And so remembering that you also have power to help other people and it, it can happen when you're least expecting it. So that also helps kind of keep the drive going too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, let's get into your side hustle. So you're an illustrator as well. Listeners, she has some cute illustrations on her Instagram. I'll have all the links for those in the description. So basically I want to ask like, what inspires you to illustrate? Because I've seen like, you know, so many different styles of illustrations out there. And I feel like, you know, you have your pretty consistent style on your page. So yeah, what inspires you? And tell us a little bit about your process from concept to final design. Yeah, what really inspires me, I think, is on one hand, growing up, it was really people and faces. People's portraits were really inspiring. And then also later on down the line, I got really inspired by mundane objects, things that they just sort of sit around your room, but they hold great value to the person viewing it. And so when I was really young, I sort of I got into drawing at a very young age before I was 10 years old. And my grandpa really loved to draw and he when he would give me art books, the two that he would always give me that were his was like a how to draw comic faces. And it was, and another was a figure drawing book. And so I think from early on, I just had this natural draw to comics and expressions and portraiture as well as just people. And so I drew a lot of people over the years. And then eventually that led to a little bit more stories and as I try to draw sort of spaces to kind of convey a certain meaning or a certain mood or tone is kind of where it expanded to. At one point, I wanted to be an architect and I love interior design. So I, I love a lot of buildings and interiors and again, spaces and, and rooms for thoughts and feelings. And so a lot of that kind of drives what I'm doing today. But From concept, I kind of took a different twist where I have this thing called daily doodle. And sometimes I don't know what to draw or what story I want to tell then. So one thing that I do to help me on a daily practice is I 
I basically create a little grid and every day I draw something that happened that day, whether it was like my mood or an event or something about the day. And it's just a very quick, simple, less than five minute sketch. And I've noticed over the course of time, it becomes sort of a visual diary and it looks it looks very, you know, it's very lo-fi, but it's inspired me to take then some of those ideas and some of the things that have happened in my life from that month or those previous months and turn them into larger projects. So for example, like I've been getting really into greeting cards and so I'm trying to come up with some different design concepts for that. And I bullet journal all of the time. And so in my bullet journal, I actually was designing the September layout and I drew a bunch of leaves and kind of was just, you know, making it my own thing. But when I was doing that, I also incorporated it into my partner's birthday gift. And then I incorporated those same leaves into a design that I tried to make for a greeting card and then it kept blossoming. So it kind of, it starts from a place of just creatively letting it out and just kind of letting it fly in my bullet journal. And then it sort of moves its way into sort of a larger concept into a final design. And so today I ended up making it as one of my seasonal greeting cards about autumn that I'll be releasing soon. But that's, that tends to be how I, how I will work. And if I don't work like that, usually it's around then characters. And I try to think of a story or a plot line or a person and basically draw a character that sort of emulates that. So I have a lot of different things that will inspire me. A lot of the things that have happened this year have inspired me. So whether that's as I'm illustrating, making sure there's more BIPOC faces in my work that I didn't realize might have not had previously. If I'm also creating pieces, is it something that's more about communities within, you know, LGBTQIA, which I am also a part of, or is it, am I pushing my design work and illustration work that also meets the moment from a cultural perspective? And so that has also been inspiring for this year. It also helped everything that's happened with with COVID. It actually inspired my sister and I to create a sort of prompt list for October coming up for the Inktober drawing thing that happens every year. And so, but we wanted to make a prompt list that reflected everything that happened in 2020. So that was another thing is like, we're coming up with this idea of like, okay, what story are we wanting to tell about 2020? What's everything that happened? And we're creating prompts and now they're going to turn into illustrations. And eventually I'm going to take some of those and see if any of them can turn into prints or cards, et cetera. So a lot of different ways, I guess, to be inspired. I feel like I don't, I never have an empty box of ideas. I feel like I usually have a ton of ideas. It's more about just me trying to get to finish one of the ideas. <laughs> Too many ideas and not enough time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I feel you. I feel you. Since you really enjoy sketching, is that something you do often with the like ideation process with product design? Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's one thing that that I feel like a lot of people miss or, you know, it's so easy to just jump straight into Figma or Sketch. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty. I've been there too. It's fun. But but I think there's just, there's just something about the quick paper and pen sketch that can just save so much more time than sitting in a program, no matter how fast you are zipping things together. And so I will still do that. I would say probably not 
as often as I did when I first started getting into design, but I do try to do that. And everything from, yeah, product design on the job to, oh, I'm going to redesign my personal website. Hmm, let, maybe I should start with the sketch and then a wireframe first, just before I start just jumping into Squarespace and trying to figure it out. So trying to make a process out of everything because it makes me kind of slow down and really think about it. So yeah, a lot of, lot of sketching, a lot of doodles. <laughs> have you had any art shows? Or are you wanting one one day? I hope to have one one day. I've, I've had some art shows back in Chicago prior to coming to Seattle for different things. I've also had my work in different shops and stuff, but this is sort of the first time again that I'm kind of spinning it up here in Seattle because I've been here now for five years. And so I'm hoping to create things and either have a show, get into local markets, like the little fairs and festivals that everyone goes to. But yeah, we'll see. One thing at a time. But first, we're, first I'll get my Etsy shop up and running. <laughs> yeah, so currently you're on a sabbatical focusing on holistic wellness and thinking about what's next for you. So what led you to your sabbatical? The great thing about the sabbatical is it's, I think it's something that people don't realize that they can do or ever in a position to do. And I remember reading about it saying like, I think it was Stefan Sagmeister was saying something about like, oh, every seven years or I think every six or seven years, he then like goes on a year off and then comes back refreshed. And so I started looking into it more and yeah, I just really like the concept of the sabbatical is like stepping, just being able to step away and refresh, whether that means focusing on health, whether that means leveling up in your skill or exploring like an adjacent skill that you are interested in, but just didn't have the time for, or whether that is just a lot of self-care because you've been on the hamster wheel. So so I think it can mean a lot of things to people, but a lot of companies do also offer it. I just don't know if people are aware of it. Mine, I took on my own, but I know it was something that is offered at various companies. But yeah, I think for me, I I got to a point where I was making a lot of great products and pumping things out. And usually there's an ebb and flow in the product design cycle. Like you're busy during one season and then there's another part that's kind of a lull and you get a little break. And once I started feeling like it, it didn't feel like that lull was happening and that break kind of never came and it was continuous is when I was like, okay, I don't know if this is sustainable. And I felt like I needed to take a step back. And so I would say, honestly, realistically, I've definitely hit burnout a few times in my uh, career, but it was more so just this like, okay, I want to I want to bring my whole self in this way. I want to make sure I have the time and space to do it right. I want to show up in the way that I want to show up, communicate in the style that's going to get me to go far in a company. And right now I need to take a moment for myself. And so, so yeah, so I, I pulled back and I ended up basically listening to a lot of minimalist and financial podcasts that helped me like have some money on the side and save up so I could do that as well and feel very grateful that I'm in a space where I can take some months off and it's been pretty nice and it it really is really allowing me to kind of see like okay yeah what what do I want to do next do I want to just go into a very like a very very senior design role and just go back in as a principal designer do i want to like people manage and lead again do i want to go back into leadership or 
you know, do I want to consult? Do I want to be my own business and like do everything on my time? And so I just, I don't know all the answers yet, but I like that I have the space to think about it now and just like to take a step back. Yeah. I didn't even know like companies offer sabbatical as like a part of your contract. That's such an awesome add on. I mean, definitely if I could, I would take one. <laughs> yeah. They definitely do. Yeah. If, if anyone listening is wondering, it's usually called a personal sabbatical if it's not, say, linked to something for like a medical leave or disability or maternal or paternal, you know, anything like that. But yeah, it's a personal sabbatical. Usually a lot can last like three to six months. Generally, it's usually unpaid, but you have your job when you come back or people I've seen in the industry basically have run large companies or been in leadership or done awesome things. And they're just like, I'm taking a sabbatical and they take three years off and they come back and they're a children's book author. Like and they just completely changed their life. So yeah, yeah, whatever you need for you. But I think just checking in with yourself is, is super important because if you don't check in with yourself and how you're feeling, how you show up for work, like no one else is going, no one else can read your mind. So you gotta, you gotta make sure you stay on top of it. Yeah. Yeah, these companies don't care like that about you. <laughs> they may offer, you know, all the perks and stuff like food and wellness clubs and all that stuff. But honestly, like you have to do your own evaluation, like how you're doing to know if you need a break or not. Yeah, de- definitely. Because every company has a rhythm. Every org or design team has a rhythm. And sometimes, you know, you're not on the same rhythm as everyone else. And that's also 100% fine. And I think that some places that's welcomed, other places, it's not as much because there's different expectations. So yeah, that's why I just think, just checking in with you and making sure you're all good. (laughs) Yes, yes. I also believe that it's crucial to continue to inspire designers to like never get complacent with where they are, you know, always trying to bring their ideas to life. Cause I mean, as product designers, like why not? I mean, you have all the skills and capabilities to create your own products. So while you were working full time, what did you do to keep yourself inspired? Yeah, I think for me, one thing that I love to do, I still love to do is I love going to conferences and I really love going to meetups and I say meetups because I feel like it's powerful just to see other people in your community and what they're talking about. So you can get a little bit more in the details of something you might want to learn. But conferences, on the other hand, I know there's a lot of people who don't like conferences because they don't feel tangible enough to apply to their everyday work. But I love them because to me, they feel like a breath of fresh air. And I feel like they're they show so many other people that are solving problems that are so different from yours. And honestly, it gets you out of the bubble. And so, you know, I loved working at Amazon and it is very much a bubble of Amazon things. But I just remember like whenever I go to a conference and saw someone doing something so powerful, like in healthcare or like something that was coming out of a different country where they were focusing on like water wells, like I just... There's just so many other things that design and product design can apply to. And I think if you're just only in your space doing the same thing around the same people, it's hard to be inspired by things that aren't your natural competitors or like what's adjacent to what you're already making. But I think 
by going to conferences and just traveling and getting out there, you just, you really just see all of the ways that design can really take shape. And for me, that's inspiring. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll be like, what am I doing? I'm just making a device like, oh, but then other times I'll be like, hmm, how can I look at this product differently and position it this way? Or like, oh, I think my next chapter, I want to focus on stuff around wellness because I really see how powerful it is. And I'm really drawn to it. Like you might not know that if you're kind of like your nose is stuck in the grind. So whether that's going to a conference or just being around people and places that aren't the norm to me has always helped inspired me. I would love to sit online and read endless medium articles all day. And I really, I love everything that I see come out of, I think it's the, it's the UX design, the medium article that has the little polar bear is a little polar bear on it. <laughs> I love everything they make. So I get a lot of inspiration from them when it comes to reading things, but yeah, between podcasts and books and really just also just getting out in the world because I feel like it, you can easily drown by all the things that you're trying to consume and keep up on. But I think just, yeah, taking a breath, getting out of your day-to-day, seeing other people that are presenting things from around the world, like going out in nature and just like breathing and <laughs> taking a breath also kind of inspires to think so. Yeah, just anything that's probably not your day-to-day is is helpful for me. Let's take a short break. Did you listen to this episode before it launched? My email club members are the only people who get access to this behind-the-scenes info. They're the first to know when I launch new products, post a new blog post, and they also get access to new episodes before anyone else. This weekly email is a way for you to see the behind-the-scenes of what new things are coming to UI Narrative. I also share my weekly UI UX inspirations, tips, and product challenges. So you really get to see what my creative process is like each week. So the next episode is about, oh wait, I can't tell you. You have to join the UI Narrative email club to hear more. You can join at uinarrative.com slash email club. That's uinarrative.com slash email club. I have a lot to tell you, so I can't wait to talk to you soon. I think too, like what conferences, cause I'm one of those people that's kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to go to the conference or not, but then it's like, cause some of the times it's like, I love seeing, you know, the inspirational part of conferences, but then also too, I'm planning to learn something. So if I don't learn something from the talk, I'm just kind of like, eh, what was the point of this? But I feel like going to a conference with like your goal of why you're going, I feel helps you enjoy the conference better. That's something I've figured out for me. Because before when I would go without goals, it kind of felt like a bit empty handed sometimes with some of the talks I would sit on. But when I go with like, okay, I'm trying to like learn about this specific thing. And two, like you can see the list of the different talks that people are going to talk about. So just having that in mind will help you have like a better turnout of what you're going to gain from it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's really important to to know what you're expecting going in so then you don't feel like you're going in blind. And I also know, though, too, like the aspect of if you go to a conference, you have to learn something and you have to bring it back and you have to like bring it. It's like it's a way that companies position some companies will position it so people can go for free or they have a budget. You have to like learn something, come back and then 
give back what you've learned. And while I agree with that, and that can be helpful, I don't think that's all that conferences are supposed to do. And I think that there's more of a performative aspect of that of like, you're, you can only go if you do X, Y, and Z, and it has to be for this reason. So that's why that's why I think it's important to go in with a, what do you want out of it? And if it is to learn something, if it is like, oh, hey, this one person is talking about design systems. I'm trying to do this at my company. I'm going to that talk. Cool. If it's something that's like, I have no idea what's going on in, in AI right now. It's got nothing to do with my company and what we're working on, but I'm just going to sit here because it's just a thing for me to hear. And I just want to listen. Like, that's okay too. And I think allowing yourself to be more flexible for both of those situations to happen, I think will be more helpful versus, versus always feeling like if I don't, if it's not so transactional, it's useless. You know what I mean? So I think that there's, yeah, a lot of vision and inspiration comes from things that sometimes are not that transactional and they're not that obvious. So. Yeah. It's definitely that pressure that companies give you. Cause I'm, I think both negative experiences. Yeah. We're definitely from (laughs) when it was the company telling me I had to give them a write-up of what I learned. And that was like the hard part for me. I'm like, dang, I guess this conference wasn't beneficial for me then. But it's like, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. As we said, having those goals in mind for yourself is so important. Next, we're going to get into listener questions. So I asked on Instagram stories, what questions do you have for a UX designer? Here's a question. Would you recommend college or an online bootcamp to get started in UX? So my preference and what I've what I've seen work in action, and because I've also been a part of the mentorship programs at boot camps, is I would lean towards boot camp, and I'll tell you why. So the barrier to entry to getting started in UX is pretty low these days. So there's so many like free online sources of information whether it's through courses, books, articles, even like Slack channel conversations, certificate programs, and then yeah, the full-time immersive boot camps. And I think they're powerful because it provides a hands-on realistic experience of what is going to happen in the day-to-day. And I say that because a lot of these boot camps, they're modeled by what's happening in the market, what's actually going on with companies in your city, And most of them, at least the best ones, actually offers, you know, actual client projects. You get clients that come into the boot camp and do mock interviews. You get job fairs. You get put up with a one-on-one mentor, a career coach. And you actually get to work on your portfolio and understand what kind of a portfolio it takes to get hired. And I think that's one of the hardest things when you go to like design school or just getting an undergrad, maybe in a master's program, it's a little bit different. But with colleges, a lot of it is, it's great. And it's still like design and graphic design and theory. And you're learning a lot of the basics and you're learning sort of maybe the background information of how you approach design thinking, you know, things of that nature. But one thing that I've seen, like it doesn't always set everyone up for success is, you know, a lot of the projects that they do are hypothetical. They're not actually meeting with clients. They're not actually having to like learn what are real constraints and how you navigate those conversations. So I think that even though you can learn great things from if you, if you're like, Hey, I'm going to college anyway, or I'm going, I want to go to college. 
I want to go to design, sure, go for it. But I think that what I've seen in the boot camp model is that you just have very like high impact learning. They have specific tools and processes in place that actually equipped you to get hired right after better than a college does. And they work on their portfolio as well, which a lot of times I've seen people come out of college programs and they did a capstone project, but then it's like, okay, well, did you build a portfolio website? Like, do you know how to write case studies? Like, do you know, like, and a lot of them, I haven't seen that. So maybe some programs do that now, but I just know that working with boot camps myself, like I mentioned, I mentored with designation that eventually got, I don't know if they got bought or consumed by Flatiron School now. And I've been very close with a lot of people at General Assembly and just I just see what they do and how it actually works and the model works pretty well. So I think the likelihood that you will get a job and kind of get into UX and really understand it more about what it actually means today is higher when you go to a boot camp for sure. And also a lot of times these boot camps, they have designers come in to do the mock interviews, to sit and look at portfolio reviews. I've been asked to do them before. So it's they're getting real world people that are currently actually performing the job that's also going to teach you and help you learn. So I think that's, that's really valuable. But I know that a lot of UX immersive courses or programs are more UX focused and they do have like a week maybe on visual design or, you know, graphic design a little bit, but it's not really about that. So I would recommend that if people are going to boot camp for the UX program to also supplement it with either courses or classes or ongoing education around visual graphic design and UI design on your own. Because a lot of times when you do start as a junior designer, you're going to have to kind of do everything. And so I think knowing the background and like layout and good practices in typography and that like that stuff is also very important. And so that's a lot of the the stuff that you would learn at a college course if you went to design school. So I think just being well-rounded in how you're attacking the different skills and the different responsibilities that you're going to be expected to perform on a job is smart any way you slice it. I just do think that boot camps will give you more of a, a hands-on approach of what's actually happening today in the world. One of my students at Springboard, she just finished a college course in visual design, specifically like graphic design, but then she came to Springboard to get like the UX education. So it's like people are getting college degrees and still feeling like incomplete about enough experience to get a job. So I definitely wholeheartedly agree. Boot camps are the way to go. Also too, it saves you money. But (laughs) visual design is definitely like one of the hardest learning curves when getting started. So I feel like putting your all into that, I feel like UX is something you can easily grasp as long as you, you know, get the process down of how you're going to go about researching and all of that stuff. But yeah, practice is like the best solution for visual design. And one of the biggest things I like to tell people is look at something that you think has great design and try to recreate it. I feel like being able to dissect something into the elements and then into components and so on is going to really help you understand how you can create something just like that or even better. Yeah, definitely. I, 
I have heard that advice as well. So I fully agree with that. I also, one of the other ones that I really like is the daily UI challenge. And you probably know it, but for anyone who doesn't know it, it's essentially you sign up for the daily UI and every day in your inbox, you get a prompt for something that you need to create. So I believe when I signed up for it, the first one was like login. And it's something very simple, and but you could make it as robust as you want. And I remember being really inspired when I would go on Pinterest and just like search the hashtag daily UI day one or dribble and just seeing what people were making. And in my head, I was coming at it from the UX angle of like, oh, here's the wireframe. But then I'm like, okay, well, this is good for me to practice. Now, what are we going to do when it comes to the UI, to the visual design, to the skinning of it? And so for anyone that's also just kind of looking to tinker on their own, I think it's it's really good because they give you very like real world, different components and different modules and layouts that everyone uses today from login screen to like checkout path. Like it's very common stuff. So that's also something fun if people are looking for things to practice on, whether it's in a wireframe form or a high five form. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I've also done the daily UI for a little bit. I, I didn't keep up with it just because I'm like, well, I don't really need to do this. <laughs> but for someone getting started, I think it is a great challenge because it's helping you think about how to create something with very vague information, which is exactly how it is in the industry. You don't always get all the information up front. So I really think it challenges you creatively, which is so useful. All right, so that's all the listener answers for this week. As a reminder, you could be included in the next episode. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at UI Narrative and Twitter at UI Narrative CO. I randomly ask questions that will be featured in an episode and answer your questions live on the show. All right, so we're going to end this episode with a question that is completely unrelated to everything we've been talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So what is your favorite musical instrument and why? I would have to say it's between the piano or the cello. (laughs) So I can't play cello. I grew up playing a little piano. I also could play clarinet, but piano is much nicer, I think, than the clarinet. But with the cello, I love the cello because it's so somber. And the music that comes out of it is very moving. And it always just like pulls at the heartstrings. So when I hear mellow cello, as I call it, it's such a... It really is such a storyteller in an instrument to me. And so I really find it a very moving instrument. But I do love when the cello is combined with soft piano. And then I love piano, as I mentioned, because I played it. But I feel like piano is really like a staple instrument in a lot of the music that I listen to in the background when I personally feel most relaxed or cozy or creative. So I love a lot of like soft piano jazz, any type of relaxing piano, classical piano. And then and then I also listen to a lot of post-rock, which is it has a mix of piano with rock to create sort of large sweeping sounds. And then piano sounds great when mixed with ambient beats if you want more of a chill, you know, lo-fi or down-tempo sound. So I've been contemplating getting a keyboard and practicing back again because it's very much into music growing up and performing and singing. So, but yeah, piano or the cello, both are, both are pretty great. And Spotify has some good playlists on both of them. So yeah. Yeah. I love strings too. I would say for mine, it's guitar, mainly just because the versatility of effects 
you know, you can have acoustic or electric, you can have like classical or heavy metal, like there's so many ranges and all of it, you know, sounds amazing. Even well, country without the lyrics sounds good, (laughs) (laughs) which is ironic since I live in Texas all my life. (laughs) Yeah. I love guitars and also too, I play not like professionally or anything, but I play occasionally and it's just one of those instruments that's just so calming to me. And I feel like you can get away with figuring out how to play something, even if you aren't super skilled at it. And it can sound pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guitar is, guitar is great, too. That definitely would have been right up there as well, because pretty much everything I listen to has a guitar <laughs> in it. So probably more than piano or cello, for sure. But yeah. Yeah, guitar is great. I love, I'm loving all the, uh, the indie folk and the singer songwriter and the, the acoustic soft guitar vibes is, yeah, is what I've been pretty into these days. So where can we connect with you online? So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. If you just go to Stasia.tbeck as well as Instagram and Twitter. So on Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at Nastasia Lease. These are both my personal accounts. But if you'd like to specifically follow my illustration, it's at Nastasia Lease underscore art. So I'm I'm on there a lot as well as my website. People have reached out to me on my website, NastasiaLease.com. So yeah, any of those ways you can find me. Awesome. So tag me at your narrative and Nastasia Tvek at Nastasia Elise on Instagram or any woman or people of color that you know are interested in becoming a UX or UI designer, let us know about it. And we'd be more than happy to give them a little bit of advice. I appreciate you taking the time to join us on this episode. And I'm sure you've inspired some designers today. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be a part of everything that you're building at UI Narrative. It's awesome, Tilda. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the UI Narrative Podcast. If you like what you hear, make sure to show this podcast some love by commenting and subscribing where you listen. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at UI Narrative or Twitter at UI Narrative CO. I also respond to emails at hello at UI Talk to you later. Bye.